The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Going Beneath the Surface of Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy, Understanding the Pathophysiology and Deploying New Strategies for Timely Diagnosis and Targeted Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KHN860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Anjali Owens from the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Welcome to this educational activity on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In the next hour, we will update our understanding of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy pathophysiology and discuss strategies for timely diagnosis and emerging new therapies. We'll start with a quick look at gaps in care for HCM patients. Many patients living with HCM are undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. The cornerstone of diagnosing a patient with HCM relies on accurate cardiac imaging, which is often underutilized. Once diagnosed, patients with HCM can have trouble getting access to specialty care and advanced treatments. HCM occurs in at least one in 500 people worldwide affecting both men and women and people of all ages and all ethnicities. With a prevalence of somewhere between one in 200 and one in 500 people, it is estimated that there are 15 to 20 million people living with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The underlying pathophysiology of HCM is becoming better understood. We know that in a healthy heart, the sarcomeres or contractile units of the heart use energy efficiently. But in a heart with HCM, there are excessive actin-myosin cross bridges leading to hypercontractility and abnormal relaxation. In a patient who has obstructive HCM, there is an additional myocardial energy expenditure that's required due to outflow tract obstruction. We see several different anatomic variations that can be observed in patients with HCM. A clinical diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is made when imaging of the heart by either echo or MRI reveals a maximal end diastolic wall thickness of greater than or equal to 1.5 centimeters in any wall of the left ventricle without another cause for that degree of hypertrophy. Starting at the left of the diagram is pictured a normal heart. To the right is a heart with what we call non-obstructive HCM with predominantly septal hypertrophy. In the center is a heart that has LVOT obstruction and systolic anterior motion or SAM of the mitral valve. Next is a variant that we term mid-cavitary obstruction. This form of HCM can lead to development of an apical aneurysm over time. And finally on the right is pictured a heart with the apical form of HCM. We know from the international share registry that patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are at risk to develop both atrial and ventricular arrhythmias and the heart failure over their lifetime. In addition, due to the relatively high risk of atrial fibrillation, patients can also have cerebrovascular accidents. A delay in diagnosing HCM is common and especially in women in whom diagnosis delayed by about six years on average compared with men. The reason for this delay is unclear, but may be due to symptoms that are misinterpreted, 
ignored, or inappropriately attributed to other causes. Women may also be less likely to seek out care early on in the disease process. As a result, women usually come to us with more advanced symptoms and heart failure. A recent ACC survey of healthcare providers highlighted perceived barriers to optimal management, including difficulty in diagnosis, lack of access to HCM centers, and ineffective pharmacologic treatments. Top areas for improving education included risk assessment and monitoring of disease progression, in addition to emerging therapies and the genetics of HCM. In the next section, we'll use a case to illustrate the diagnostic journey for a patient with HCM. This 68-year-old African-American woman was referred to us with systemic hypertension on four agents, including a diuretic for edema, obstructive sleep apnea on CPAP therapy, diabetes, and neuropathy. She was having palpitations and several runs of non-sustained BT, as illustrated on the top strip, were found on Holter monitoring. Her reported family history was a bit vague, with three brothers dying in their 60s, but of unknown cause. Her EKG showed left ventricular hypertrophy with repolarization abnormality. So in thinking about this woman, or really any patient who you are seeing in clinic, and when you might suspect a patient has HCM. It's sometimes helpful to break it down into what to look for on history, on physical exam, and on family history. The most common symptoms that we see in patients with HCM are exertional dyspnea, chest discomfort, palpitations, lightheadedness or dizziness, and sometimes, and concerningly, syncope. Symptoms can vary from day to day depending on ventricular loading conditions, and thus it's pretty typical for patients to report good days and bad days. Bad days may correlate with dehydration or hot, humid conditions, anything that can lead to decreased ventricular preload, especially for patients who have left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. On physical exam, the typical finding of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction characterized by a systolic ejection murmur that augments with Valsalva can be auscultated. And again, this murmur is typically dynamic in nature. You may hear it on one visit and not hear it on the next. I encourage you all to take a family history, even if it's brief, as a positive family history of cardiomyopathy, sudden death, heart failure, or stroke may increase your suspicion that your patient may have HCM which is typically inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. And finally, remember that many patients with HCM are completely asymptomatic and are diagnosed incidentally, so a lack of symptoms does not rule out the possibility that the patient has HCM. One of the most common ways that an asymptomatic patient gets diagnosed with HCM is by an EKG that's performed for another reason. For example, a preoperative risk assessment prior to non-cardiac surgery. Patients with HCM can manifest left ventricular hypertrophy, repolarization abnormalities, Q waves, inverted T waves, and ST depression. A significant proportion of patients with HCM can also have a normal EKG. So again, if you have a suspicion based on history or physical exam, a normal EKG should not stop you from pursuing further diagnostic testing. Here's our first challenge question. What would be your next step in evaluating our patient?
The next step in diagnosing HCM after taking a personal history, doing a physical exam, taking a family history and doing an AKG is to pursue cardiac imaging, which is really essential to making a diagnosis of HCM. The workhorse of diagnosing and managing HCM is a transthoracic echocardiogram. Echo should be done with the goal of obtaining full visualization and measurement of all of the left ventricular walls. In addition to measuring wall thickness, assessment for LVOT or cavitary obstruction is really critical and must be done at rest and with provocative maneuvers such as Valsalva or exercise. If echo is inconclusive for whatever reason, cardiac MRI should be pursued. Back to our patient, here's a screenshot of her transthoracic echocardiogram. And what you can see is at least some degree of septal hypertrophy and a small left ventricular cavity size. Although the anatomy is not well elucidated with poor acoustic windows and poor endocardial definition. What test would you recommend next given the suboptimal quality of this echo? Our patient went on to have a cardiac MRI due to the suboptimal quality of her echocardiogram, and the MRI demonstrated left ventricular hypertrophy with apical predominance and a maximal left ventricular wall thickness of 1.5 centimeters. There was no systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. Her reported family history, as you will recall, was a bit vague with three brothers dying unexpectedly in their 60s but of an unknown cause. Some people may have chalked this up to hypertensive heart disease. However, genetic testing in her case revealed a pathogenic variant in the gene troponin I. Our guidelines recommend that genetic testing is performed in a patient with HCM and that the initial genetic testing includes genes that are associated with strong evidence to be causative of HCM. To recap this section before moving on, the symptoms of HCM can be vague and can overlap with symptoms of other cardiac and non-cardiac conditions. If you don't include HCM on your differential diagnosis, you can't diagnose it. Common misdiagnoses include exercise-induced asthma, typically when a younger individual with HCM reports exertional shortness of breath or wheezing, we see them diagnosed uh, inappropriately with asthma. Another potential misdiagnosis is mitral valve prolapse. And typically we see this when a female patient has a murmur, an innocent heart murmur. Usually this misdiagnosis occurs in childhood. Panic attack or anxiety. This misdiagnosis occurs more commonly in women, but also in men. And finally, syncope. That's incorrectly attributed to vasovagal syncope. Be on the lookout for these misdiagnoses do a deep dive if you see this and make sure that you get cardiac imaging. There are also phenocopies or mimics of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which are diseases that can look like HCM by echo or EKG, but really are very distinct. And in some cases, these diseases have their own targeted therapies and a different prognosis than HCM, making it very important to recognize them and diagnose them correctly. For example, the infiltrative or storage disorders listed here can present with left ventricular hypertrophy on cardiac imaging, 
but there are often extracardiac features such as neuropathy or autonomic dysfunction or concomitant skeletal myopathy or renal failure that may alert you to the fact that you are not dealing with garden variety HCM. Genetic testing can also be helpful in excluding these diseases as most are included now on genetic testing panels for HCM. So based on our patient's history, family history, cardiac imaging, and genetic testing, what is her diagnosis? This patient has sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a pathogenic variant in the gene troponin I. In the next section, we will discuss how to improve symptoms and function with emerging treatments for HCM. Let's start with a review of the current 2020 HCM guideline recommendations for treatment of symptomatic patients with HCM. These guidelines are broken down by non-obstructive and obstructive HCM categories. To start with the non-obstructive patients who have an LVEF of greater than 50%, we start with the use of a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker as first-line therapy followed by addition of diuretics in patients who are congested, and in highly selected patients with advanced disease, we consider apical myectomy or heart transplantation. For the next section of patients, non-obstructive HCM who have advanced heart failure, which is defined by an LVEF of less than 50% in patients with HCM, we transition to using medications recommended for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and we typically stop potent negative inotropic agents such as calcium channel blockers and disopyramide. In addition, these patients often warrant a primary prevention ICD. In selected patients with advanced heart failure, we pursue CRT or even heart transplant. Switching to our last category, which is patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM, we start with beta blockers or calcium channel blockers and importantly, we discontinue vasodilators or high-dose diuretics, which can exacerbate obstruction. If patients remain symptomatic with severe obstruction, we add a second-line therapy, disopyramide, and then consider septal reduction therapy, namely alcohol septal ablation or surgical septal myectomy in patients who remain symptomatic despite maximally tolerated medical therapy. None of the current pharmacotherapies that we use were specifically designed for HCM and thus do not target the underlying pathophysiology of HCM. We currently use invasive therapy for patients who have severe symptomatic obstruction, but optimal results really require specialty centers that are not widely available geographically in the United States or socioeconomically feasible. There's an unmet need for alternatives to SRT for symptomatic obstructive HCM. The first-in-class myosin inhibitor is mavicamptin, which targets myosin heavy chain and stabilizes the super-relaxed state of myosin, thus reducing myosin head availability and reducing hypercontractility. This novel class of medications was designed to decrease contractile force at the level of the sarcomere. Importantly, these agents are cardiac specific and their effects on contractility are reversible, depending of course on the half-life of the specific agent and the metabolism of the drug in the body. The longer term results of the MAVA-LTE study 
looking at Mavicampton in patients with obstructive HCM were presented recently by Dr. Rader at the ACC conference. As a reminder, Explorer HCM was the phase three randomized controlled trial that led to FDA approval of Mavicampton. And the Explorer LTE cohort is the group of patients from the Explorer trial who are now being followed as part of the MAVA LTE open label extension trial. We observed in the long-term extension trial that patients had reduction in gradient several weeks after starting Mavicampton with a sustained significant reduction in LVOT gradient below the threshold for defining obstruction, which is less than 30 millimeters of mercury, that lasted out to at least 84 weeks of therapy as pictured in this graph. And of note, both resting and Valsalva gradients were reduced. As expected, based on the mechanism of action of Mavicampton, there was a mild to modest decline in left ventricular ejection fraction. With mean LVEF of the cohort remaining well above the 50% threshold for safety. Of note, there was general agreement with slight discrepancies between central and site red LVEF, which is reassuring as we transition to real world use of Mavicampton. Consistent with the parent study, we observed that 67% of patients improved by at least one NYHA class, and there was a substantial and sustained improvement in biomarkers, including NT-proBNP, which is pictured on the right, with near normalization of NT-proBNP by 84 weeks of therapy. Given the novel mechanism of action and first-in-class status, it's important to look at the longer-term safety data in this cohort. The exposure-adjusted treatment-emergent adverse event rate was the same or less compared with prior analysis, which is reassuring. There were three deaths reported, although we don't have much detail yet on these subjects, as the data hasn't been published yet. Dr. Rader presented this data at ACC and reported the deaths were due to bacterial endocarditis, cardiac arrest, and acute MI that were all deemed unrelated to treatment by the investigator. The most common treatment emergent adverse events were fatigue, dizziness, hypertension, and headache. Overall, 77% of patients remained on study treatment at 84 weeks, with 11% of patients having temporary treatment interruptions per protocol, including 3% due to increased QTC interval, 4% with a MAVA concentration greater than 1,000, and 5.2% with LVEF transiently dropping below 50%. Of the 12, seven resumed Mavicampton treatment. In conclusion, the MAVA-LTE study showed that treatment with Mavicampton showed clinically important improvements in both LVOT gradient, NYHA class, and NT-proBNP at and beyond 48 weeks of treatment. Mavicampton was generally well tolerated with no new safety signals, and events of LVEF dropping transiently below 50% occurred with no greater frequency than previously reported. The next study of Mavicampton in obstructive HCM was the recently completed Valor HCM study, which enrolled just over 100 patients despite enrolling during the pandemic. Valor differed significantly from the explorer population in a few ways. First, this study allowed inclusion of patients treated with disopyramide who were excluded from Explorer. 
Secondly, greater than 90% of patients in this study were class three NYHA or higher at baseline. And third, all patients had to be eligible for and actively considering septal reduction therapy to be included in this trial. Mavicamptin was titrated over 12 weeks using echo-based dosing and titration of the drug occurred at eight and 12 weeks. The primary endpoint was assessed at 16 weeks. The primary endpoint was a composite of the decision to proceed with septal reduction therapy by week 16 or remaining eligible for SRT at week 16. The primary endpoint in this study was met with 18% of patients on Mavicamptin proceeding with SRT or remaining guideline eligible versus 77% of patients on placebo. All secondary endpoints were met as well, including change in LVOT gradient, NYHA class improvement, and improvement in KCCQ. The mean age of patients in Valor was approximately 60 years with a pretty even split between men and women. Most patients were on beta blocker or calcium channel blocker therapy or a combination of both. Importantly, 20% of patients were on disopyramide and 30% were on combination therapy in this trial. Despite this maximally tolerated therapy, resting and provoke gradients were severely elevated at baseline. Mavicampton reduced eligibility for SRT and improved NYHA functional class with 63% of patients reporting at least one class improvement and a quarter of patients reporting greater than or equal to two class improvement. With regard to safety and LVEF, there was a mild expected reduction in LVEF in the population overall who were treated with Mavicampton, approximately three to 4% reduction compared to placebo. There were two patients in the Mavicampton group who had a transient LVEF less than 50% that led to protocol-driven temporary discontinuation. There were no permanent discontinuations and no SAEs of congestive heart failure, syncope, or sudden death. Rash and nausea were reported more frequently in the Mavicampton group. Most patients have now rolled into the longer-term open-label part of the trial. In summary, Valor HCM suggests that most patients prefer a non-surgical treatment. Two patients in each group chose SRT, but the vast majority of patients rolled into the active phase of the trial, which was week 16 to 32, and the long-term extension after week 32. Back to our first case, Leticia, who has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a septal wall thickness of 1.5 centimeters, a resting LVOT gradient of six millimeters of mercury, Valsalva gradient of 18 millimeters of mercury, and an exercise gradient of 20 millimeters of mercury. Would she be a candidate for Mavicampton at this time? Because Leticia has non-obstructive HCM, defined as a gradient of less than 30 millimeters of mercury despite provocation, Leticia would not be a candidate for Mavicampton at this time, which was FDA approved in April of 2022 for symptomatic patients with obstructive HCM. The next in class cardiac myosin inhibitor is Afficampton, which slows phosphate release from myosin, 
thus stabilizing the weak actin binding myosin conformation. I will highlight recent results presented at ACC, including cohort three of the phase two dose finding Redwood HCM trial. Cohorts one and two, as you will recall, were randomized and placebo controlled cohorts, and cohort three was open label, including patients who had really refractory severe left ventricular outflow tract obstruction who were already treated with an AV nodal agent and isoparamide. You can see that this group of patients still had hyperdynamic LVEF of approximately 70% with severe symptoms, many class three, and elevated gradients and elevated NT-proBNP. What we saw was a significant reduction in LVOT gradient that is evident as early as two weeks after initiation of therapy and is sustained in a dose-dependent manner throughout the treatment period. After a two-week washout, importantly, gradients return to baseline. There was a mild decrease in LVEF that again recovered to baseline after washout, proving that the drug is reversible. There were two responder analyses that were done in the cohorts. The first was assessing hemodynamic response with complete response defined as a reduction of resting gradient to less than 30 millimeters of mercury and reduction of provocable gradient to less than 50 millimeters of mercury. Using this definition, 93% of patients responded in the higher dose cohort. In cohort three, and again, these were patients with refractory LVOT obstruction, despite AV nodal blocker and isopyramide, 46% of those patients had a complete hemodynamic response with the addition of afficamptin. The other half of patients in the disopyramide cohort notably would have been eligible for a higher dose of afficamptin, but in this uh, early study that was predominantly looking at safety, a dose of only 5, 10, or 15 milligrams was tested. The second responder analysis was neurocard association functional class with 30% placebo response and up to 64% in the higher dose cohort two. The response was significantly higher, up to 85% in the group of, di of patients who received disopyramide and afficamptin. However, I would caution you that this was an open label cohort which may contribute to the higher percentage of responders in this group. In addition to seeing remarkable results in LVOT reduction, we also saw a significant reduction in biomarkers as pictured here, including troponin and NT-proBNP. The pivotal phase three randomized controlled trial of afficamptin called Sequoia HCM has started enrolling and plans to enroll between 250 and 300 patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM. Doses of afficamptin include five up to, 20, up to 20 milligrams during a 24-week treatment period. Similar to the Redwood HCM study, afficamptin will be titrated over a six-week period with echo guidance, and there will be an MRI substudy to evaluate for structural changes over time. So what's next for cardiac myosin inhibitors? We currently have only limited data in patients with non-obstructive HCM. That came from the Maverick HCM trial that was published in 2020. It was a phase two dose-finding study that found significant improvement in biomarkers, 
and also reversible reduction in LVEF in 12% of the participants. The Redwood HCM study does have an open label cohort four that's currently enrolling for patients with non-obstructive HCM and a phase three trial, randomized controlled trial that will be international for Mavicampton in patients with non-obstructive HCM is in the planning phase. Let's move on to a case study. This is a 56-year-old female who presented to our center with New York Heart Association functional class three symptoms. She had dyspnea with really minimal exertion, unable to climb up a flight of stairs without stopping. And she was on maximally tolerated beta blocker therapy at the time of her presentation and had negative genetic testing. Her EKG is pictured here, showing nonspecific STT wave changes. Here are echo images from the same patient. You can see systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve in the transthoracic echocardiogram images. And you can see that the resting LVOT gradient was measured at 80 millimeters of mercury. In addition, she had evidence of elevated filling pressures and left atrial enlargement. What is this patient's diagnosis? Based on the severe systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve with posteriorly directed mitral regurgitation, asymmetric septal hypertrophy, and a gradient at rest of 80 millimeters of mercury, this patient has symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What treatment would you recommend for Vicky? As a reminder, she is already on maximally tolerated beta blocker therapy with New York Heart Association functional class three symptoms and a resting gradient of 80 millimeters of mercury. So for Vicki, who has clearly symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, looking at our guideline-based therapy, our first-line therapies are beta blockade or non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. Vicki is already on maximally tolerated beta blocker. So moving through the algorithm for patients who continue to have symptoms and severe obstruction, we would be moving on to offer Vicki either addition of second line therapies such as disopyramide or starting the conversation about septal reduction therapy and based on anatomy, availability, geographic um, accessibility to centers of excellence, the discussion can be had in a shared decision-making manner of whether or not to pursue septal myectomy or alcohol ablation. Now we may have an additional option, which is a cardiac myosin inhibitor, as evidenced by data from the Valor trial in patients who looked a lot like Vicky. Um, severe obstruction and severe symptoms despite maximal tolerated medication, that you could also start the discussion about whether she may be a candidate to add on a cardiac myosin inhibitor. Now that we have Mavicampton as an FDA-approved therapy for patients with symptomatic obstructive HCM, we need to think about how patients should be counseled and how prescribers and pharmacists need to be trained to safely prescribe this medication, which was approved with a REMS program for risk evaluation and safety monitoring. 
Prescribers and pharmacists need to complete a REMS certification prior to prescribing Mavicamptin. It's important to consider that patients should only be started if they have a left ventricular ejection fraction greater than or equal to 55%. And again, this is for safety because we know the mechanism of action of the drug is to reduce hypercontractility. Pharmacists and prescribers should review the patient's medication list before prescription to look for drug-drug interactions. And also, the drug was approved with dispensation done by specialty pharmacies to start. And these specialty pharmacies will also be responsible for looking for and checking for drug-drug interactions. Patients who are started on Mavicamptin should be counseled regarding the risk of developing systolic dysfunction and heart failure. They should be counseled on what those symptoms can include and to report them immediately if they start to feel worse. They should also be counseled on the risk for drug-drug interactions and told to report any newly prescribed medications, any new over-the-counter medications prior to starting them to their team to make sure that there are no drug-drug interactions that are anticipated. Patients also need to be counseled on the need for serial echocardiograms, and that's once a month to start, in order to monitor response to therapy and also to monitor for safety to ensure that the left, eject, left ventricular ejection fraction remains above 50%. With regard to initiation of Mavicamptin therapy, this information is taken from the package insert for the FDA-approved medication. And at first glance, this may seem complicated, but I would encourage you to just break it down by month and follow the algorithm. So we start at five milligrams once daily. And again, initiation is for patients with an LVEF greater than or equal to 55%. And at week four, we're really assessing for safety and for gradient reduction. In patients who respond very well to Mavicamptin or are poor metabolizers of the drug, we may find that the Valsalva gradient is less than 20 millimeters of mercury. In those patients, it's recommended to down titrate the drug to 2.5 milligrams once daily. In patients who remain with an LVOT gradient of greater than or equal to 20 millimeters of mercury at week four, we maintain dosing at five milligrams once daily. We then move to week eight or month two of treatment. And again, you can see the same pattern. If you're on 2.5 milligrams once daily and your gradient is less than 20, then we do wonder if perhaps the drug is not being cleared adequately or you're a slow metabolizer. And in that situation, you would withhold the drug and return at week 12. For patients who remain with a gradient greater than or equal to 20 millimeters of mercury, they maintain the dose either at 2.5 or five milligrams daily. At week 12, we then move into the maintenance phase. So you can see in the first three months of treatment, there is no up titration of drug. It's either maintenance or reduction of dose. And again, this is to assess for safety. Once you enter week 12, which is the maintenance phase, then there is the option to up titrate the dose. 
and you can see that pictured on the bottom part of the chart. An up titration is done if the LVEF remains greater than or equal to 55% and the Valsalva LVOT gradient remains greater than 30 millimeters of mercury, in which case you can choose to up titrate to the next high, higher dose. So from 2.5 up to 5, from 5 up to 10, and from 10 up to 15. Importantly, after a dose change, you recheck clinical status and an echo four weeks after increasing the dose. And it's not recommended to titrate any more quickly than every 12 weeks. If at any time LVEF is less than 50%, you interrupt treatment. Let's look at that a little deeper. If LVEF is less than 50% on any echo, number one, interrupt treatment, and number two, recheck the echo every four weeks until the LVEF returns to greater than or equal to 50%, ideally back up to baseline. If a patient is tried on 2.5 milligrams daily and has an LVEF less than 50% twice, they recommend to permanently discontinue treatment with Mavicamptin. If you are able to restart a patient after the LVEF recovers to greater than 55%, treatment should restart at the next lower dose. So if a patient was on five milligrams when the LVEF dropped to less than 50, you would restart at 2.5. If the patient was on 10 milligrams, you would restart at five, so on and so forth. And again, after restarting therapy, you wanna do a safety echo in four weeks and maintain the same dose for the next eight weeks. We know that Mavicamptin is contraindicated in patients using moderate to strong CYP2C19 inhibitors or strong CYP3A4 inhibitors. It's also contraindicated in patients using moderate to strong CYP2C19 inducers or moderate to strong CYP3A4 inducers. I encourage you to work with a pharmacist, either as a specialty pharmacist or your local pharmacist, when going through patients' medications in order to inform them of potential drug-drug interactions. One of the most common drugs, including over-the-counter proton pump inhibitors, um, can have interactions. So again, going through your patient's medication list prior to initiation, and having an open discussion about potential drug-drug interactions. If Vicki initiates treatment with Mavicamptin, when should her next echo be scheduled? Given that we are initiating Mavicamptin, Vicki's next echo should be scheduled four weeks after starting the drug to assess for LVOT gradient and for LVEF. So our patient, Vicki, was actually part of the Explorer HCM study. She completed blinded treatment and then enrolled in the open label long-term extension study. Here are her echo pictures after starting Mavicamptin. You'll recall that she had significant systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, significant mitral regurgitation, and a gradient of 80 millimeters of mercury at rest prior to starting on therapy. Now we can see her heart approximately three years later being treated with Mavicamptin. Her LVOT obstruction has resolved with a peak gradient 
of six millimeters of mercury at rest and with Valsalva. Her symptoms have improved significantly with class one symptoms. Her left atrial size has reduced and her SAM and mitral regurgitation are much improved. Perhaps most remarkable are the structural changes that we see on MRI in this patient who had clear SAM, mitral regurgitation, and a maximal wall thickness of 1.8 centimeters pre-mavicamptin, which is pictured along the top. And we saw a significant change with resolution of SAM and mitral regurgitation and remodeling with reduction of LV wall thickness and decreased left atrial size pictured on the bottom after three years of treatment with mavicamptin. Her ejection fraction importantly remains normal. However, we do not yet have longer term data to know how these changes may continue to evolve as patients continue myosin inhibitor therapy. Some unanswered important questions include, will this class of medications be disease modifying? Will they alter the natural history of the disease and if so, when is the right time to start? In patients who are on therapy, will they need the medication forever? And will they need the same dose forever? These again are important unanswered questions that hopefully we'll get answers to uh, in terms of the long-term studies. In the last section, we'll talk about one of the most important things when taking care of patients, and that is how to involve them and collaborate to achieve the best possible care. The diagnosis of HCM, particularly obstructive HCM, can have a lot of different impacts on the way a patient feels and how their family feels. We often encounter patients who are feeling anxious or fearful or uncertain when they receive a diagnosis. And depending on how they choose to cope, um, some patients are in denial, others downplay the significance of their symptoms or attribute them to something else. Um, oftentimes family members are very important in understanding how a patient feels and functions when they're outside of the office. So I encourage you to include not only the patient, but also their family members in your discussions when you're figuring out what treatment strategy to pursue. Shared decision-making is particularly important when you're talking with the patient and their family about whether or not to pursue an invasive management strategy. That may be something like a prophylactic defibrillator or myectomy or septal ablation. We know from the guidelines that there are pros and cons of each procedure, but both procedures require expertise and that specialized care is not always available geographically or feasible socioeconomically to all patients. The cardiac myosin inhibitors may allow us to have a third choice in terms of a pharmacologic therapy for more advanced disease as evidenced by the Valor study. It's most important to put the patient in the center of decision-making as illustrated by this graph. So whether or not you're a cardiologist working in the community, a cardiologist working at an HCM center, or a cardiologist working at a comprehensive center, the most important thing is that we're all in communication and that we're keeping the patient's needs and the patient desires in the center of decision-making. Key takeaways from this educational session 
are that HCM is common, occurring in at least one in 500 individuals worldwide, but it's often misdiagnosed or overlooked, especially in women. Keep HCM on your differential diagnosis so that you can achieve an early and accurate diagnosis. Cardiac myosin inhibitors are an emerging class of medications that improve symptoms and function in appropriately selected individuals who have symptomatic obstructive HCM. Keep in mind that while using cardiac myosin inhibitors, the LVEF must be monitored for safety during treatment. And cardiac myosin inhibitors are now being evaluated not only in obstructive HCM, but also in patients with non-obstructive HCM and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. More data for this subset of patients should be forthcoming. That concludes our discussion for today. I hope you found the activity informative in advancing your understanding of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and that you feel more confident about diagnosing and treating patients with HCM. And I hope you'll be watching for new developments that may further improve the care of our patients. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KHN860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.